0: The Envelope is brought to you by HBO Originals Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni project for your consideration.
1: For the Los Angeles Times, welcome to The Envelope. I'm Mark Olson. I write about movies for The Times and join us this season. We're going to be checking in with some of the A-list talent, directors, writers, actors and craftspeople behind some of the years. Most exciting movies.
2: That's right, Mark. Hi, everyone. My name's Yvonne Vieira, and I cover television for the Los Angeles Times. This might feel a little different. Each episode won't just feature one conversation. We're going to be bringing you multiple conversations with talent in Hollywood. If you're listening to us on the regular Envelope podcast feed, be sure to check out LATimes.com or the LA Times YouTube channel to catch the video versions of our conversations. And we have some exciting news. Helping us this season to bring you a more robust version of the envelope is this man right here, Sean Finney. Sean, tell us more about yourself. You can introduce me anytime you
1: want to.
0: (laughs) Hello, LA Timers. My name is Sean Finney. I am new to this show. Thank you for having me, but not new to the industry for the last 10 years. Deep breath. I've been at the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, the Oscars, as the Executive Vice President, Member Relations and Global Outreach 10 times fast. I know. Try and say I'm that. notes.
2: write the notes. Read, read, yeah, the yeah. notes.
0: Um, and really just excited to be here and extend the conversation you all have already started. And I'm just gonna add a little sauce. you know, yeah. Just a little bit. Oh, because I feel like I'm so excited to talk about all the talent that we know and love so much. And it's an opportunity I think to explore some of the talent we don't know that really kind of helped create the world of the film and cinema that we watch and love. So I'm super excited about that. But I mean y'all, we're back after a strike.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Which felt like 10 years. But wasn't that long, but was that long in a sense? Yeah. And I know that we're going to dive into it, but where do you want to start with the state of the race?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're not going to be able to get into everybody that's a contender. We don't have that kind of time. And I mean, my brain doesn't function that way. <laughs> but we're going to get into some of the people that, you know, have folks talking, right, Mark?
1: Yeah, I think hopefully by the end of this conversation, people will feel like they have a good grasp of. Who, you know, the titles they should be seeing, some of the talent they should be thinking about and get a kind of an idea of like who and what is we're going to be paying attention to over the next few months.
2: Yeah, to make it easier the next time you're at a dinner party and people mention these movies, you can have some semblance of an idea of what they're talking about. Just that. Uh, Just that. (laughs)
1: Before we get into that, let's take a short break. Welcome back to
0: The Envelope. I think it's time for us to get started with supporting actor.
1: Are you want to go first? Sure, I think we're going to be talking about, you know, three actors from three movies that are definitely some of the titles of the year. First of all is Robert Downey Jr. in Oppenheimer. You know, we've gotten so used to seeing him in these sort of lighter kind of glib roles that I think in some ways we, people have forgotten like what a powerful actor Robert Downey Jr. can be and so it's exciting I think in Oppenheimer he plays his character Louis Strauss who was a sort of a, a bureaucrat, a government official who Christopher Nolan the director of the film was described as the Salieri to Robert Oppenheimer's Mozart. This man who's sort of overtaken by his own jealousies, his awareness of his own failings and it really like powers, especially the second half of the movie like gives the movie a lot of its sort of narrative arc and so I think you know Robert Downey Jr. is someone that is an actor that doesn't have an Oscar. I think he's the kind of person people would love to see him recognize. We all know his story. And so I think that's someone who's gonna have a, have a really strong presence throughout the season. I have another Robert for you, Robert De Niro, Mr. De
0: Niro yes. in Killers of the Flower Moon. I, listen, I feel like he's a marquee name. Whenever you see Robert De Niro as a part of something, even the intern, we are excited as moviegoers and as the industry to lean into it. I got I got a hand Thank clap for, for the industry for the intern. But I think that, you know, his portrayal in here, he has this weird thing where he humanizes the villain and his portrayal of William Hale is haunting, honestly. Mm. He is kind of propped up as like a pillar of the community, donating to charities and schools, which helped him really gain the trust of the Osage community, but also helped him gain political power, which was the atrocity of it all. When really he was there to really control their wealth and territory. This wealth should come to us. Their time is over. It's just gonna be another tragedy. And he unveils these layers of like this evil character throughout the film. And it's so riveting and haunting, but in a way you almost want to befriend him because you're like, he's doing the right thing until you see he's doing all of the bad things. Mm -hmm. And I feel like honestly, Mr. De Niro, respect for this.
2: You can't trust someone with goggles like that. You can't. Look, the, the person I'm gonna talk about delivers like a Broadway-style song and dance number. I'm talking about Ryan Gosling. I know it feels like an eternity ago when like Barbie had the sort of Hollywood publicity machine in a chokehold. And I know there were some naysayers about Ryan being cast as Ken. Like, is he too old? What's that platinum blonde hair doing? But I feel like he really delivered this unforgettable performance as this forgettable Ken doll like this is somebody like his version of Ken is like this insecure guy who's really eager for Barbie's attention. When he joins her in this journey into the real world it's like he's finding his identity outside of Barbie. And I know that like it maybe goes against the film's thematic focus, but I feel like he has maybe one of the most interesting and fun parts in sort of (laughs) giving this like commentary on male fragility. And again, he delivers that I'm just Ken number that was a showstopper. And I have to say, My niece left that film wanting a Ken doll and she now has that Ken doll and he's part of every adventure that we have in playtime now. Was it just
1: your niece that left wanting the Ken doll?
2: No, of course not.
1: (laughs) Come on. I have to say, Yvonne, Sean, it's funny. Yvonne and I both had assignments to write about Barbie and so we were at one of the first screenings of the movie before anybody really was talking about or knew anything. And I just remember what a surprise, like moment by moment, that entire movie was. To where when it got to I'm um, just Ken, it was like you were like levitating or yeah. something because the movie was just so surprising like every moment of it. And I was wondering like
0: how they were going to include Barbie in today's world mm-hmm. and just Barbie represented so, so many much. different aspects yeah. and careers. I loved it.
2: Yeah. It was really good. Well, okay. What about Supporting Actress?
0: Dave, I Joy in The Holdovers, Davine Joy Randolph in The Holdovers. I mean, honestly, she's an artist, artist. She's a classically trained opera singer. Did you know that? I didn't. Okay, graduate of Yale, but how she brings the complexity to this character, her. So she plays the, she says head chef, head cook, head chef, whatever Davine says, I go with. And in this, she's grief stricken her. She's mourning the loss of her son and also dealing with the complexities of the times that we were in, this was what, late 60s, early 70s? So we're talking about MLK, we're talking about JFK, we're talking about the Vietnam War, and she carries this pain on her face the entire time, but does it and has these nuances of like joy, but also grief. She carries it in such a way that really just illuminates the screen. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that?
1: Oh, I don't know, I suppose I failed someone who richly deserved it. Oh,
0: The Osgood kid? Yeah, he was a really oh. Rich and um popular combination around here. I'm here for Miss Dave, I enjoy Randolph.
2: love it. What about you, Mark?
1: Well, I want to talk about Julianne Moore in May, December. You know, so the movie teams Julianne with the filmmaker Todd Haynes, who they've worked together a number of times before, most notably be on Far From Heaven, which Julianne was nominated for an Oscar for. And the story of the movie, it's based loosely on Mary Kay LeTourneau. So it's about a woman who has, you know, an illicit relationship with a teenage boy. They ultimately get married, start a family. But the film takes place 20 years after all that, when an actress, played by Natalie Portman, comes to visit and sort of like just do some research and sees what's going on. And it just turns everything upside down. And part of what's so exciting about the movie, and I think Julianne's performance in particular is that you can never quite get a grasp on like what's going on like mm-hmm. even it's it's funny to me that the movie is competing at the Golden Globes in the comedy or musical category <laughs> when it is funny but it's like a catch in your throat yeah. kind of funny and so even I, I kind of love the fact that even like what is this movie is like part of the conversation around the movie itself and Julianne's performance really captures that sort of like slippage that's such a part of it
2: well, there's another industry vet that a lot of people are talking about this season, and that's Jodie Foster. Mm. and she's The Jodie Foster. The Jodie Foster. <laughs> All hail Jodie Foster. Um, she's in Netflix's uh, Niad, which is this biopic about the marathon swimmer Diana Nyad, And, you know, she's this person that plays, you know, the coach and sort of best friend of Diana as she sort of is on this epic swim from Cuba to Florida in her 60s. Like, I just can't even fathom, like come on are you are you swimming from cuba to florida and you're
0: i am not swimming from Cuba. i'm not swimming down the block
2: and jody plays bonnie like like i said her best friend and she really puts her life on hold to be this fierce advocate for diana and you know diana is very self-obsessed and bonnie is maybe like the only person that can pierce through that in a way that helps the audience sort of like see diana through her eyes like because she likes her we like her and it's just so fun to see jody and annette benning who plays diana in this really sort of um complex friendship uh a later in life you know there's the selfishness there's the sort of loyalty and the unwavering support it was really a fun dynamic to see on screen and also i mean jody is going to be headlining the new season of true detective so i'm all for jody foster season all we all it.
0: just need a Bonnie all in our him. lives, yeah. truly. I'll be your yeah. Bonnie. Yeah. Just know that.
2: Okay, <laughs> but I'm I'm not going to swim from Cuba to Florida. <laughs> <So> <laughs> we're I not going to do that. that. Please. Yeah.
0: We are going to explore a little bit more when we come back, and we're going to go into screenplay and directing.
1: And so let's get talking about uh, the screenplay categories. We're going to kind of mush up Adapted and original. Sean, who, who are you thinking about?
0: I'm just going to go with Miss DuVernay. I mean, honestly, her, her art in origin is moving. I ugly cried. Maybe I did you, too. You tried to cute cry, but I ugly cried. And then at the, the end, end, I, I went in the off. bathroom and bawled. I mean, just how she really explored. First of all, anytime Ava does something, I you know she has something to say and you know that it means more than what you think it is. And what I love is that it's an invitation for all people to have further conversation and her deep dive into Isabel Wilkerson's life as she's writing the book Cast, exploring caste system and how that is not only done in America, but globally and generationally exploring racism and what is racism, and what's not and loss. Mm -hmm. How she peels back the layers to Isabel's life Miss DuVernay, honestly, her her work did it for me. And it's important to note, first black woman nominated in Best Picture. And I believe for a documentary feature as well. And so I feel like we universally love when Ava does something. And I think that people are going to show up to really lean in and hear what she has to say.
2: Well, you and I were talking about this after. Like, I this film also really made me want Ava to direct a rom-drom, like the chemistry between Ingenue and John Bernthal, like, I was ready, just give Hands me more. Down. Just give me more. Hands down. I'm serious, Ava, give us more. Give us more. Together. We want to
1: say, selfishly, <laughs> you know, as much respect as you have for all that Ava does, working in producing and television, directing documentaries, yeah. to have her back directing a feature film, it's just so, so exciting. Uh, and important. important. To have her back sort of in the feature film space, I think really means a lot.
2: I'm going to be talking about somebody that I go to when I know I just want to just cry or be broken into a million little pieces, and that is Andrew Haig, who has given us All of Us Strangers, and this is a film that stars um, Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal, like, swoon, please. (laughs) Um, I don't know, I mean, it's this devastating portrait of loneliness, of regret, of like, Grief from childhood and loss, and those are like—it's bingo for me. I want all of that in me. Just help me with my seasonal depression. Um, and so the, the film, in the film, like Andrew plays this screenwriter in London who's like writing a script about his late parents who died when he was young, and in the process, he has this chance encounter with this mysterious neighbor of his and it sort of upends like his everyday life and sort of sets off this sort of I don't know how you would describe it like a supernatural romance kinda drama. Um, that sounds right. Yeah. I like the <laughs> supernatural like, part. How do you put it all together? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well that's what's funny is that there is something mystical about the movie and it is difficult in a way to talk about that you don't feel like you're spoiling, spoiling something. People, but also like it's hard to put your finger on mm-hmm. exactly like what the movie's doing and exactly like how it's sort of like, you know, exploring the relationships in the way that it does.
2: Yeah. What about you, What Mark? about you,
1: Mark? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to talk about, you know, uh, Sofia Coppola with her new film, Priscilla. It's hard to believe that it's been 20 years since she won an Oscar for the screenplay for Lost in Translation. And in the time since then, you know, she's just continued to explore the sort of inner lives of girls and women in ways that few other filmmakers do. And with Priscilla, so she, it's an adaptation of the memoir Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley. And Sophia takes this story that I think most people, a lot of other storytellers, would explore the sort of the kitsch aspect of it or some of the like more awkward aspects mm-hmm. of it. And she transforms it into this sort of journey of like self discovery of Priscilla Presley going from being like a young girl sort of under someone's thumb mm-hmm. to becoming a woman of you know her own sort of like power and abilities and I, it's funny anecdotally i know of at least one story of a woman who saw the movie and then left her boyfriend because th- <laughs> don't tell
2: my <laughs> don't tell my drama mark no it wasn't me it wasn't me you're airing out right <laughs> sorry here. yeah no it wasn't me so i think the movie has this
1: power that is you know unique even among like sophia's movies
2: well my favorite thing has been i still haven't seen the film but Like, I can't scroll TikTok without people talking about Jacob and the voice that he's done and also how he's not still in character with that voice in comparison to Austin Butler. It's just been so interesting to see the comparisons between their two Elvis Presleys. Well, it
1: is interesting how the two films, Sophia's Priscilla and then Baz Luhrmann's Elvis from last year, they actually complement each other really nicely. They don't cancel each other out. It's not a situation where like one's better than the other. Like they really are pursuing different ways of exploring the lives of these very you know complicated people who are in their own way sort of American royalty. We
2: just need the version of Elvis where he's still alive, even though he's not alive. I don't know who's that's gonna do that, but that's coming up, I'm sure.
1: Maybe maybe we go to directing until we figure <laughs> out <laughs> we figure out who's gonna do that one. Yeah, go for it. Well, I'll start, you know, so I for the uh, L.A. Times for our holiday movie preview, I had the chance to interview Michael Mann and talk about his new film, Ferrari. And, you know, Michael's a filmmaker who's just deeply influential on other filmmakers. I mean, he makes these sort of like stylish, moody explorations of masculinity, you know, Heat, Miami Vice. And now with Ferrari, he's done something that it takes it to a whole new place. It's got this like grand sort of operatic scale. It stars Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari, the carmaker, and the movie explores his sort of complicated relationship with these two women in his life, played with Penelope Cruz and Shailene Woodley. And there's just, there's an emotion to this film that I think is really unique, but at the same time, it has these just thrilling car racing sequences.
2: And there's one scene that I think will just leave audiences gobsmacked because I just, I know I should have seen this coming but I just did not see it coming and give I'll them a hint. leave give it them, at that. Give them a hint and I'm not talking about Patrick Dempsey okay? Okay, so, okay fine What about you Sean?
0: <laughs> Justine Trier in Anatomy of a Fall. Okay love, mystery the ambiguity of the film I think is is should win an Oscar in and of itself mm-hmm. she did I believe just received the palm d'or. Correct. Okay. Which is incredible but I mean it really explores, we're like Get your notebooks out, everybody, when you're watching this film, because you have to really watch for clues. I don't want to end it. I don't want to leave it. I don't want to tell you what happens. But I will say that you get to see the a love on trial. Mm-hmm. And through the perspective of court, through the perspective of her child, through the perspective of people around her. And I believe within the first 30 minutes, you're kind of into the plot. You're really into it right away. And I feel like Anatomy of a Fall is going to do something really big. And Justine, I think she has it. I think she has it.
2: Well, there's also the film uh, Zone of Interest by Jonathan Glazer, which is, you know, on, you could call it a Holocaust film, but it's a different take on one for sure. I mean, this is an adaptation of Martin Amos's book, um, The Late Martin Amos, and it's this unrelenting sort of glimpse of this Nazi officer who, with his family, lives next to Auschwitz. And it's just this like chilling and haunting sort of portrait of complicity, like even the way the film starts, which is just like a blank screen, and you're sort of forced to sort of isolate your senses, especially your hearing, because you'll find that as the movie continues, sound is so sort of important in terms of the eeriness of this family living this somewhat idyllic life uh, at their compound. And while, you know, over the wall you know, people are being extinguished. It's just really like a travesty, just hearing the sounds, seeing the plumes of smoke. It's it's a lot to take in. And I know the cinematographer had said that Jonathan had told him I sort of want to capture sort of big brother in the Nazi in a Nazi house, which is just such a striking way to sort of picture this. But I don't know, it was it was chilling.
1: Yes, and you know Jonathan Glazer does his first movie in ten years. In ten years. And worth the wait. And if you can wait just a little longer, uh, we're going to come back after a short break to talk about actor and best picture.
2: We're worth the wait too.
1: So let's get into talking about the lead performances. Sean, why don't you start to talk about lead actress? Fine, I will go ahead and
0: talk about <laughs> Fantasia Barino because how can we not talk about The Color Purple? I feel like we universally, like collectively, fell in love with Fantasia during her stint in American Idol. But we quickly got to see how her real life wasn't as glamorous as American Idol. And she pulls on that and speaks about that a lot on her press runs for Color Purple. And I think what's interesting is that she also played Celie mm-hmm. in the Broadway play. And after that, decided she would never do it again. And then so Oprah calls her, director Blitz called her, and she's like, I'm not gonna do it. But when they- How started,
2: do you say no to Oprah? How
0: do you <laughs> say no to Oprah? Honestly and truly, okay. not often, I not often yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. And I I find that her decision to come back was a release for her. Mm-hmm. You know, She speaks about that as well. And she speaks about like the stunts where some of the abuse that Celie plays, typically Celie's been really subdued. She, feels ugly she does not feel empowered but she speaks about Silly having imagination and I feel like she really brought that to the character in this portrayal of it and honestly the film is beautiful the choreography is beautiful honestly I feel like the film it's hard how do you replace Oprah and Whoopi and Steven Spielberg by this version mm. what about you all?
2: I'm thinking back like to a performance that really stayed with me, which is Greta Lee in Past Lives. I mean, I know it feels like it's been a while since this film has come out, but she gives a really heartfelt and compelling performance as Nora, who is this woman whose, you know, past and identity and marriage is sort of upended when she reunites with her childhood sweetheart. And Greta just really has this way of like making these intimate moments feel really powerful and overwhelming because her character's grappling with all sorts of things like you know who i was trying to figure out who i am now and dealing with loss and like what is life and all these big questions that i think a lot of us grapple with on a daily basis and i didn't know that director celine song was really pulling from a lot of her own experiences here and I don't know, I think Greta, who I love in, in TV shows like Russian Doll and The Morning Show, if you guys haven't seen the new season of Morning Show. <laughs> Amazing. And, and Greta Lee, specifically her yes. character arc this season, it's its unreal. Well,
1: that's part of what I think is so exciting about Past Lives is Greta Lee is someone that, like, you've seen her in some stuff. She usually is, like, a supporting character. Yeah. But to see her able to, like, step up, given this big of a role, given the opportunity to just carry a film... I think it's really exciting. She yeah.
0: falls into that character yeah. and brings those intimate moments. She brings you the audience along with them. And you're like, this
1: is me. It's you, but it's me. It's that us. last oh.
2: scene, that yes. final scene. I mean, come on. Hands down. Come on.
1: Mike, what about you? Yeah. Well, I'm going to talk about Emma Stone in Poor Things. That you know, So the Emma worked with director Yorgos Lanthimos on The Favorite, and they've reunited on, on this one. Emma's back not just as an actor, but as a producer as well. And it's written by... Uh, Tony McNamara, it's an adaptation of a a novel by Alistair Gray. But the story and the movie is just 100% Yorgos Lanthimos in the way that it's just this weird allegory of like what makes humans human, but in a way that you wouldn't really expect. Emma plays a woman. It's kind of the story is kind of like a riff on the Frankenstein story, where for reasons I won't reveal here, Emma is going through the stages of development at like an accelerated rate. And so you see her develop from seemingly like sort of like a childish character to a a more fully developed woman at this sort of odd rate of speed. And and she just approaches the world with this real lack of guile. And it's going to be fun to see if in particular the phrase furious jumping becomes like a popular catchphrase from the from the movie.
2: It's just fun to see her in this like weird quirky era. I mean, she's in Showtime's The Curse and just seeing her sort of in like embracing the side of her is really fun to see. Yeah, seeing
1: someone like Emma Stone, like embrace her inner weirdo is very exciting. And also her as a producer, can we just clap it up
0: for that? Because honestly, I love seeing her as an actor, but I also love understanding that she's really a part of the process Mm -hmm. in a different way, Mm -hmm. hands down.
2: So what do we have next?
1: Uh, I think,
0: do we want to talk about best actor? Mr. Coleman Domingo. And his portrayal in Rustin as Bayard Rustin. He is living in in his time, 110%. And I I love it because it's an opportunity for us to understand history, but to understand the people behind the history. Mm -hmm. We all know about the March on Washington, but how it came together. And his role really kind of tied in and centralized the reasoning behind it, but also the execution of it. And I feel like his wittiness, his ability... Also, he was navigating not only being black in the civil rights, but also being gay, mm-hmm. and how that was used against him, sometimes by his own community. Mm-hmm. Coleman completely embodied that, and he also embodied the color purple. So the fact that
1: he had time to do both of them, we just need to give it up for him mm-hmm. just for that. I'll talk for a bit about Jeffrey Wright in American Fiction. Again, an actor that we've you know seen a lot of, even just this year, he's also in... Rustin. He has a part in Wes Anderson's Asteroid City as well, but here he has a lead role in American fiction. Uh, The movie, it's the debut from writer-director Cord Jefferson, and it's an adaptation of the novel Erasure by Percival Everett. And, you know, Jeffrey Wright just brings this charm and warmth to this character, who's meant to be a bit of a curmudgeon, where he he plays someone named Thelonious Ellison, a, a, a writer who has really been struggling in his career because he's always told that his stories, the work he does, isn't black enough. (laughs) And so he kind of, as a joke, kind of as like, you know, a stick in the eye, he writes this story that's meant to be a parody of stereotypes. And of course, people take it at face value. It becomes the biggest success of his career. And he has to adopt this whole new kind of false persona to promote the story and just the way Jeffrey pulls off the layers of that performance while also having a, you know, sort of a romantic story, a family story that's being told around it. It just it's a wonderful, just like such a like a multi-leveled performance. And
0: his confliction with like success and like being honest and authentic was also something really, I think, important to do a deep dive into too.
2: Well, now we have to talk about somebody else who just like goes all in with his projects as a play and that is Bradley Cooper. Yeah. I mean, he he directed, he co-wrote and he stars in Maestro, which is a film about the, you know, legendary compose, composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein and his complicated relationship with his wife, who in the film is played by Carey Mulligan. And I like I mean, the transformation is stunning in like all respects and capacity, like you can really tell that Bradley like poured his blood sweat and tears into this. I mean, it's what six years in development and five plus hours every day in in hair and makeup before he was directing. It's just a lot again, I'm not doing all that for you guys. Um, <laughs> 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 and you know, it's with with biopics, especially I know he received some criticism about the prosthetics, but obviously, Leonard's family was supportive of of how deep he went into this character. And I think, you know, with biopics, it's easy to sort of get into the pitfalls of becoming a caricature of the person that you're representing. But it seems like people are really praising how he captures the sort of emotional core of Leonard. It's often a challenge in these kind of like prosthetic
1: makeup heavy performances to act around the makeup. And he really he really does like he it seems really natural. I mean, it looks incredible and. The and I think that, yeah, he just he brings just a passion to this story that I think you can tell that he, you know, writing, directing, starring, producing like he like he's doing all that for a reason. And like, you can feel like what it sort of means to him and what he's trying to get across in the story.
2: Yeah, And even the voice work was like just impressive, especially coming off of something like A Star Is Born, which she also directed and starred in with Lady Gaga. But I remember hearing his voice there and thinking, whoa, this isn't Bradley. But here in Maestro, I was just like, wait, I was just listening so much deeper with the voice transformation. Okay, let's talk about Best Picture.
1: Well, I'll start, let's maybe talk about Oppenheimer. So, you know, uh, a three-hour period drama about a nuclear physicist does not sound like the stuff of nearly a billion dollars at the box office, (laughs) and yet, you know, I mean, (laughs) Christopher Nolan obviously is not a normal filmmaker. This movie became part of the Barbenheimer, you know, cultural phenomenon, and that really kind of like helped it out a lot, but I think also there's just no denying like what Christopher Nolan means as a filmmaker Again, he's one of these people, like, currently does not have an Oscar. Seems like in his lifetime he should end up with at least one Oscar. And so I think this movie's gonna be very competitive. You know, it's got a deep bench, like, ensemble cast. Obviously the craft and the technicians on this film are just impeccable. And so I think in the category of director, adapted screenplay, and then also with his wife and fellow producer, Emma Thomas, you know, they're gonna be competing in Best Picture.
2: Mm Well, I'm going to talk about the other half of this, and that's Barbie. Um, it, it truly was like the cinematic events of the year. I don't remember anything else taking hold like this, but maybe I'm just not well versed in it. But
1: no, I mean that's I mean there's been nothing quite like Barbenheimer, you know, in who knows how long, when actually like. Going to the movies seemed like an event. It was something everybody was kind of doing and talking about. Yes. It was just wild.
2: Shirts were made. Posters were made. And with Barbie specifically, I feel like this was the first time I heard, especially like girlfriends of mine, say that they went to see it multiple times. And that, like we want these kinds of films, is what I'm saying. And, you know, this is from a uh, writer and director, Greta Gerwig. She co-wrote this with her husband, Noah Baumbach. And, you know, she really delivered a film that beneath, you know, its bubblegum exterior, explored things like sexism and, like, self-discovery and identity. And then you have, on top of that, Margot Robbie playing Barbie. Who is a Barbie. And also producing. <laughs> and it was just like such a thrill to to just see how much fun the whole cast had in promoting this film and like the way Margot really embraced portraying Barbie like out on the red carpet every day with the outfits. And it just, it made me... And she's still doing she's it into awards season. She's still doing it into awards season. And, you know, it just launched all these think pieces, so many TikToks breaking down the film in, in ways that was really fun to see, like hearing the criticism, but also the praise. It was fun. And the movie was just fun. Like it was really, really fun. But can I read you some stats that I think yes. are important? Yes. Biggest opening weekend for a film directed by a woman, debuting with $162 million. That's crazy. That's huge. And it has sold more than $1.4 in ticket sales. And I think that needs to just be reiterated Rated as many times as possible, women will come to the movies. And Multiple men will times. come, too, to see movies about women.
0: Love that. I mean, I have to go with, I mean, you spoke about being in the theater for a while. Martin Scorsese's Killer of the Flower Moon. I mean, listen, it is an important film, but it's also necessary. I think it really illuminates a dark chapter in American history the Osage community, we have heard about the story, but I feel like it really kind of contextualized the nuances and the complexities of the characters. I also love the fact that it's an all-star cast. You can't really go wrong. I'm so happy for Lily Gladstone. Mm -hmm. I'm so happy Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro. Also, I love to see him teaming back up, Martin teaming back up with Eric Roth, teaming back up with Thelma, Rodrigo. I feel like Killers of the Flower Moon, get comfortable. You will need to sit through it. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's an important, necessary film that illuminates so much. Well,
2: even the conversation it ignited, like just having people talk more about the events and who should be telling these stories and what we need more of. I think it's important as always, for
0: sure. So I'd love to see Scorsese at the end of the film, too. I don't want to ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but I love seeing him pop up at the end.
1: Well, it's exciting because I think, you know, to see a filmmaker of his age and his caliber who still seems to be... Searching, who's still pushing himself, and in a lot of ways is doing a lot of things that are new in this film and is very reflective even of the work that he's done in his past movies. And I think that final, those final moments of the movie, it's almost as if he's saying, This is too important to me to have anybody else like say this except for me. And so I think that to that just I think is really exciting to see someone like Martin Scorsese still pushing himself in the way that he is.
2: Not to make light of that moment, but someone was saying and i just was i couldn't believe it but that they were in a in a in a showing of it and a lady behind them was so excited because she thought it was eugene levy on screen
0: i mean we had to end this we had to <laughs> end sorry. this the i was up. just
2: like okay sure um <laughs> I mean, he addressed you at the front of the movie and you forgot that quickly, and but it was three hours. Again. It was so- three hours.
0: She probably went to the bathroom and forgot. <laughs> yes, I love yes, it. Yes, I mean, yes. honestly, though we've come to the end,
2: well, that's it. I'm
0: really excited to be here with you all. Thank you all for making yeah. space and creating space for me and know this isn't it. First
2: episode down. First episode. We Somehow. we did it. Somehow we did
0: it. I'm not really sure how. Thank you for watching the envelope. We'll be back next week with more movies and more conversations. The Envelope is brought to you by HBO Originals Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni project for your consideration.